your Bibles, if you would join me in Matthew chapter number 8, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 8. We're going to read verse number 5 down to verse number 13. His is the glory, isn't it? That's why we've come today to worship the Lord. And Matthew chapter 8, verse number 5 down to verse number 13. The Bible says, And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him, and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this man, Go, and he goeth to another come, and he cometh. And to my servant do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled, and said unto them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. Father, your word is before us, is the bread of life. It is our wisdom. And we come and with joy sit before this truth. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts and minds up to understand and grasp the weightiness of the glory of your word. You said in Psalms that you have exalted your word above your name. And I pray that we would hold your word in such reverence in our heart. Help us never to treat the things of God as common. May we honor you as we come and listen And may we honor you in the way we leave in obedience. If anyone today doesn't know Christ, may today be the day of salvation. We ask it for the glory of your own sake. In your name we pray. And God's people said, Amen. You may be seated today. Have you ever called somebody to marvel? To be shocked? To like be in awe of something that you said or did? Now that can be in a very good way or it could be in a very bad way, right? Sometimes spouses will shock one another because they forgot the birthday, the anniversary date, or they can cause you to marvel because they did some incredible surprise for you. I have marveled during sports games, great plays that somebody pulled off, or terrible calls like we see when we play the Chiefs. You know... (laughs) I couldn't help it. You know, I have marveled, sadly, at this society. I see things going on across the country. I saw just this last week a six-foot-six, 270-pound student in a school in Florida when a high school teacher took his game console, a little Nintendo game thing, away from him, that he ran up and knocked her down, knocked her unconscious, as he hit her over 14 times while she lay unconscious. I don't know how she survived it. Stuff like that just shocks you, doesn't it? And they asked him later, do you regret it? He says, no, I'll kill her if I see her again. This is the kind of thing that you see in this country. Just just shocking. We had some people who were defending the YMCA's position for allowing transgender men into women's restrooms. Just yesterday, 
across the street yelling incredible blasphemies against God. Incredible blasphemy against God. One man told me, he said, I went over there to ask, him if, ask a couple of them if I could share the love of Jesus with them. They cussed me out and told me to get the blankety blank out of there. And that it's people like him that made them so much suffering, caused so much suffering in the world. I, uh, you know, it just, it's just shocking sometimes. You know, we can be amazed in life. Things can cause us to marvel. Today you have Marvel Studios creating all kinds of different superheroes. You have the Incredibles. But no one has caused me to marvel more than the Lord Jesus Christ. We serve a marvelous Lord. And when you read through the Gospels, you find people marveling at Christ. Shocked and literally stunned into silence by things that he said and did. They marveled at his birth when the shepherds saw the glory of the angelic host open up the sky. They marveled when they saw him born in a lowly manger. They marveled, his parents marveled when they saw the wise men from the east come and bow down and worship him and offer him gifts. Even at 12 years old, our Lord calls people to marvel. When he was just a 12-year-old child, his parents brought him to Jerusalem at the Passover feast. And when they left, they did the unthinkable. They forgot Jesus. <laughs> like if you're going to forget one of your kids by, you know, accident. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's others that would have been better to leave behind. You know what I'm saying? Oh, sorry, James. We forgot you. They left Jesus by accident. They go and find him three days later. And he's in the temple as a 12-year-old questioning and answering the doctors of theology. Luke 2 records in verse 46, And it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished. Extomai is the word in the Greek. It means they were Blown away, they were thrown into amazement at his understanding and answers. And when they saw him, they were amazed. His parents couldn't believe it. Jesus said he would make people marvel. In John 5.20 says, For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth, and he shall show him greater works than, than these. He told his disciples that ye may marvel. His disciples marveled at him when he calmed the storm in Matthew 8, verse 27. It says, but the men marveled, saying, what manner of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Imagine being on a boat and Jesus knocks down the storm with his word. He healed a paralyzed man in Matthew chapter 9, and it says, when the multitude saw it, they marveled. When he cast out demons, healed deaf and mute people, it says the people in Mark 7, 37 were beyond measure astonished. He was blowing people away by the things that he did. Not only did his works cause people to marvel, but his words. In Matthew 7, when he came off the mountain, it says the people were astonished at his doctrine. When, when the, the, the leading Jewish religious leaders and the greatest minds came to Jesus trying to stump him, trying to catch Jesus in his words, the way he answered them literally stunned them into silence. In Matthew twenty two twenty two, it says, but when they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. They were asking him questions to try to trip him up and make him look bad. His answers were so incredibly profound. They said, stop asking him hard questions. He's making us look worse and him better. 
This is how marvelous he was. When, when the uh, priests and authorities to take Jesus, the officers returned in John 7, 46, and they said, why didn't you take him? The officer said, never man spake like this man. The authorities were so amazed by what he said, they could not even apprehend him. Not only did his words make people marvel, but even his silence caused people to marvel. When he stood before Pilate and they hurled insults and false accusations against Christ, Christ would not even answer. In Matthew 27, 14, it says, And he answered him to never a word, insomuch that the governor or Pilate marveled greatly. What would it take to take a Roman procurator and cause him to greatly marvel? Jesus did it with his silence. You could not create Jesus. There is no religion in the world that could have come up with Jesus Christ. It is so amazing that people try to say, well, you know, they come up with Jesus. I've even heard people say Jesus didn't exist, and it's just so laughable. Jesus is impossible. He is an impossible person. He is so shocking, so stunning. The things he said, the things he did. Even the people that were around Jesus, the way they lived caused people to marvel. In Acts 4.13, the Jewish Sanhedrin, the the Basically, the legislative branch of the Jewish ruling body, it says they marveled at Peter and John and took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. <laughs> you know, it is expected that Jesus, as God, would cause men to marvel. And I believe one day when we stand before God in heaven, that we will stand and marvel for all of eternity. That we will be dazzled. We will be shocked into all. But I want to ask the question, did Jesus ever marvel at something? Was Jesus ever taken back and stunned by something he saw? And consider what it would take for the Lord to marvel. I mean, the one who spoke the worlds into existence, ex nihilo, out of nothing, what would it take him to be like, wow? <laughs> I mean, that's an impossible thought, isn't it? Yet we read this morning in verse number 10 that Jesus marvels. That, that just... It just takes me back so far. Just an amazing statement. When Jesus heard it, he marveled. There's only two places in Scripture ever records that Jesus marveled. What's interesting, both times he marvels at people's faith. And one at their faithlessness. Today I want to look at the marvelous faith of one found in Capernaum. And then we're going to look at a response of our Lord to that. Why this man's faith was so marvelous. And then we're going to look at a not-so-marvelous faith in the city of Nazareth. And so let's, let's jump into this this morning in verse number 1. The marvelous faith at Capernaum. Actually, verse number 5. It says, And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, so Christ comes to Capernaum, as we showed you last week. This is a city on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. This is the city of Peter, Andrew, James, and John. It's... It, it's uh, so blessed because it has the presence of Christ there. But, but we have to remember to whom much is given, much is also required. And later this city would also come under the judgment of God because of their lack of faith. But here he comes to Capernaum. He's going to be setting his ministry up there. Verse number 5 goes on to say, There came unto him a centurion beseeching him. Now, what is a centurion? Well, that is a Roman officer over a, over a hundred men. And people who 
got to the position of centurion, did so because they were men of battle, men of war. They had killed people. They fought. Uh, these, these were manly men. These were warriors, tough guys. He ranked in that day between an officer and a non-commissioned officer equivalent to a modern sergeant major. And what is shocking about the story is that this man is a Gentile. The first two miracles that Jesus does here when he comes off the mountain is to two outcasts. One is a leper who's an outcast in that society that we saw last Sunday. And the second is a Roman centurion who is a Gentile, who is clearly an outcast among the Jews. The Lord was showing here right away the gospel is for the outcast. It's for the Jew, the Gentile, the bond, the free, the male, the female. And he comes beseeching. It's parakaleo. It means it's a compound word, para, which is beside and kaleo, to call. He comes calling Jesus to come alongside of him, to help him, to aid him. He's pleading. This is the word of, of begging, really. And, and, it's, and it's in the present tense, which means he was continually pleading. In Luke's account, it says in Luke 7, verse 4, Luke's account of this story says, when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly. And the word instantly speaks of this was a, this was like a um, emergency situation. Like, Jesus, we need you to come now. This is a medical emergency. We, we need you right away. This is the blue light going off in the emergency room. And what was the centurion's plea? Matthew 8, verse 6, and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. So he tells us his servant is sick. The word servant here is not the word doulos, which is the word for slave, but in Luke's gospel, it uses the word doulos, which means slave. So this, this young man was a slave, a servant of this Roman centurion. Slaves were everywhere in the Roman Empire. But the but Matthew uses a different word. He uses the word pas, P-A-I-S, which is where we get the English word pedo, where we get also the word pediatric. That means like a youth. So this servant was a youth. This was a young, youthful servant of the centurion. And what was this, the wrong with this young man? It says he was sick of the palsy. The, the word palsy, parallel. Tikos, we get the word paralyzed from, it's paralysis. He was unable to walk. He was unable to move. He was in a, in a, in a, in a situation where paralysis had taken effect upon his body and, and he was grievously tormented. This means he was in terrible pain, terrible agony. You know, as a pastor, the places I've been in life, I have seen there are things worse than death. There, are, there have been times where I've visited people in both hospitals and in their homes where hospice is called in or pre-hospice, where people have told me, Pastor, I am in so much pain, I want to die. I don't want to live anymore. I'm, I, I'm, I've suffered long enough. I, I've had people who've gone through chemo, radiation, and they said, you know what, if I ever have to go through all of that again, and, and we thank the Lord for those medical advances, but sometimes people have gone through those treatments and six months or a year they've been sick and just miserable and they said, you know, it's not worth existing. I would rather die. I'm in so much pain, tired of suffering. And not only do people sometimes get to that point, but I've seen families in that place where they said, you know, we, we, we pray for our loved one to be healed. We'd love to see them get better. But if they don't, we would, we would just want their death, death to come quick. We want them to pass right away because to see them suffering is worse than seeing them die. And some of you have been there, haven't you? 
And that's hard. And there's no pain is pain reminds us of the the sinfulness of sin, the effects of sin. We all face that. Now, in our day, we are blessed with incredible medical advances. We have doctors and pharmacists that can prescribe medication to help alleviate pain and suffering. You need to understand, in first century Palestine, they did not have the sedatives that we have today. They didn't have the antibiotics. People could come down with a somewhat regular illness that we may face. Somebody could prescribe antibiotics that could bring their temperature down, but in that day, they would spike they could, they could die. It was, it was not uncommon for people to die in their 20s in first century Palestine. We call it hyperpyrexia in this day when people get a temperature of 106. And they, th- this was something that would happen somewhat common. And, and, and so people suffered. I've always thought, you know, sometimes get that romantic idea of the, the, when, when they were going out west. I like to, um, I'm, I'm kind of that adventure guy. You ever go hiking and you're like, let's just go a little bit further and see what's ahead. Anybody like that? You're like, let's just, you know, just want to push it ahead. You end up getting lost and you're in trouble. So I I would have probably died. I would have got lost and, you know, I don't know, you know, just let's camp out here and see what happens. But but I always thought it'd be so cool to go out west, you know, build your own house. I know it'd be hard. I've done construction, but just been so tough. But just find a place by a river and set up camp and just like. I thought all that been awesome. And then I thought, what if I came down with a toothache? What if you had to get a tooth extracted? All the romantic idea of going out west just went out the door. I thought, man, that would not be fun. What if you come down with some kind of infection? You're like, ah, you know, where's there ain't no doctors around. You know, honey, pull this tooth quick, right? She's like, I sure will, you know. In that day, friends, I just want you to understand that there wasn't the, the medical advances, suffering. People went through incredible bouts of pain. This centurion was a servant who, who had a servant who he deeply cared for. And this also tells you something about the centurion. This was a compassionate man. He may have been a soldier. He may have been a warrior. But he cared for people who were in his life. And how does Jesus respond to this centurion? In verse 7 it says, And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. Many believe the healing of the leper and the journey to Capernaum happened the same day that Jesus had preached. So he preached Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. He comes down from the mountain, heals the leper. He's journeying to Capernaum, which is not far away. He enters into Capernaum, and then the centurion comes. And you know, Jesus, Jesus sure was somewhat tired, walking by foot. You know what it's like. Anybody get home from church on Sundays, you want to eat a good meal and take a nap. Jesus had a human body, didn't he? He could have said, you know, I'm really tired. I need to get some dinner. I will come tomorrow. I've had a busy day. I'm, I'm worn out. But the request by the centurion becomes the priority of Christ. Friends, we serve a God who is so humble and gracious and who serves our needs. It's an incredible reality. You know, Matthew 20, verse 28 says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. In reading John 13, the day before the Lord's death that evening, He washed the disciples' feet. 
you will hear of no God in any religion that would do that. Jesus is impossible. He washes their feet. And the next time their feet would have been dirty would have been when they ran away from him that evening as they forsook him. This is the gracious God we serve. Anybody thankful that we serve such a selfless Lord? Here in Matthew 7, he says, I will come. The word I is in the emphatic in the English. It means I, me, myself. I'm the one. I will come and heal him. You know, it's amazing knowing that the Lord knew he could just say the word and heal the guy. He doesn't do that. He's, he's moved to personally be there. Like he could have said, okay, he's healed. But he says, no, I'll come. I'll do more than sending my word to heal. I'll be there. I just want you to know today, Jesus cares about you. You, you know that? Like when you, when you pray and you cry out to God, the Lord hears. He's a God full of compassion, full of tender mercies. His answers may not always come at the time and the way we thought, but His answers are always right on time and always right. And so we also see here the centurion's marvelous faith that comes to light in verse 8 and 9. This is, this is shocking. This is unexpected. This is amazing. It's so amazing what happens in verse 8 and 9 that it causes Jesus to literally marvel. And Jesus uses this man's faith as an example. And there's four things that I think that stand out about his faith that makes it marvelous. First of all, he had a faith that was seeking after God. This this man had a real need. He had a real trial, a real burden in his life. And instead of trying to figure it out by his own power and his own wisdom and his own might, he, he seeks after the Lord. And James 4, 2, the Bible says, we have not because we ask not. And I think a lot of times, friends, in life when trials come, when difficulties come, when, when physical pain or relational pain or mental anguish, hardships come in our life, we try to figure it out. And then, then when option A, B, and C doesn't work out, we finally, well, at least we can pray about it. God shouldn't be option Z, right? God should be option A, B, and C. He's the one we turn to. Jeremiah 29, 13, God says, Ye shall seek me and find me when ye search for me with all your heart. So a marvelous faith starts with a faith that seeks after God. It elevates God as being the one who can answer. Secondly, he had a right and exalted view of Jesus as Lord. In verse 6, and in verse 8, he says, Lord, verse 8, the centurion answered and said, Lord. He didn't see Jesus as just the man. He saw him as the Lord Jesus Christ. The word Lord is kurios. In the Greek, it means owner, master, supreme one, sovereign, who possesses absolute authority and ownership, uncontested power. That is the description that's perfect for our Lord Jesus Christ. The centurion recognized the lordship of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, those with a marvelous faith have a great humility. And this is just glaring. Verse 8, notice what it says. And the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof. Hold your place here if you want and, and turn over to Matthew, or Luke chapter 7. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter number 7. I want to show you couple things in Luke's account of this story that is helpful. Luke gives us his view of this as it happened. 
the Gospels are a fourfold account of the life of Christ, like, a, like four men standing around Jesus giving us a panorama view. And in Luke chapter 7, verse 2, it says, And a certain centurion's servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. So this, this servant, it says, was dear unto him. He was sick. He's at the point of death. Verse 3, when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they were come to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. So in Matthew, it says the centurion came to Jesus. You read Luke's account, and it says the centurion actually sent the elders of the Jews to Jesus. So which one is it? Are there errors in the Bible? Is this a contradiction? Well, obviously that's not the case. In first century Palestine, as well as in our culture today, it is understood when a representative of someone in authority over them was sent that that person represented the one who they were speaking for. Today we have ambassadors and representatives who go and speak on behalf of presidents or leaders. You know, the Bible says things like this in 1 Kings 6 verse 14, and Solomon built the temple. Well, Solomon didn't build the temple. Solomon had people build the temple, but he oversaw that, right? They were his representatives as builders. So in Luke, it also says the centurion built a synagogue for the Jews in verse number 5. The elder said, he loveth our nation and hath built us a synagogue. But the centurion didn't put his hand on the brick and mortar and put it up. Rather, he funded it. He authorized it. Matthew's account of the miracle is simply an abbreviation of Luke's account. So it says the centurion himself communicated with Christ, but did so by sending the Jewish elders as representatives. Now, when, when, when you first read Luke, you think, you know, so he sends the elders of the Jews to Jesus. Does this man think he's... He's superior, like too good to come to Jesus. Like he's, he's not going to wear himself out. He, you know, he wants his servant to get better, but he heard about Jesus. So, hey, why don't you go get Jesus? Tell Jesus to come here and heal my servant. Is this guy kind of an airy guy? Is he a prideful man? This was in a day when the Jews were under Roman oppression. This Roman centurion could have said, you know, I'm, I'm a Roman centurion. I have authority over you Jews. I could tell you what to do. Is that his mindset? Well, not at all. Notice in Luke chapter 7, verse number 4. It says, when he came to Jesus, when they came, the elders representing the centurion, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. They said, this is a, this is a guy who's done much for us, Jesus. These elders are talking on behalf of the centurion. They said, for he is worthy. Why? For he loves our nation, he loves the Jewish people, and he hath even built us a synagogue. And so the Jewish leaders are like, this guy is a worthy man for you to come and do this for. Notice how he responds in verse 6. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy. I'm not worthy that you should enter into my roof. Verse 7, wherefore neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but saying a word and my servant shall be healed. The others are like, this guy's worthy. The man said, no, I'm not. I am not worthy. The, the, the phrase, I am not worthy, is hikanos. In the Greek, it's the exact same word that John the Baptist used in John chapter 1 when he said, the one who comes after me, I am not worthy to unloose the shoe latchet from his shoes. 
You know what humble people who have great faith do? They see themselves as unworthy. Back in Matthew 8, verse 8, it says, The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou should enter under my roof. So you can flip back to Matthew 8. You see, this, this Roman officer understood something that was a part of the Jewish culture in that day. You won't find this in, in the Old Testament, but you'll find this in Jewish tradition. Among Jewish tradition, they said that you could not have dinner or lunch with a Gentile. They will pollute you. You will become ceremonially unclean. You cannot enter into a Jewish household. You will become defiled. That's not in the Bible, but it's in their tradition. Tradition can mess people up sometimes, right? You can have sometimes good traditions, but sometimes they're bad, and if they're man-made, they can be a mess. And so the Roman officer understood the Jews' belief on that. He understood that Jews don't come into my house, even though I love their nation, built them a temple. Jews never had entered into this, this Roman Gentile centurion's house because it would have defiled them, according to their tradition. So, so the man doesn't want to offend their Jewish sensibilities, so he's like, Jesus, I'm not worthy that you would enter under my roof. <laughs> Isn't that humbling? In a day when everybody feels like they should be the privileged, that they should be the exalted, that they should, that, that, humility is just lacking in our culture today. This man comes with incredible humility. Those with great faith have a humble spirit. This centurion could have thought, you know, Lord, I, I, uh, I, I have loved your nation. I have built the Jews a synagogue. You know, th there should be a little reward for that. I, I've earned some answered prayers here. Can you, can you uh, heal my servant? Really use this guy. But this guy doesn't look to any type of earning the favor of God. All he could see is his unworthiness. All he could see was that, I, I don't want to trouble you, Jesus. I don't want you to come to my house. I am not worthy. Sometimes Christians can find themselves saying, you know, I've been going to church. I've been reading my Bible and praying. And, you know, surely God's going to give me some good stuff. Surely God's going to answer my prayer. They feel like they've kind of earned some answers to prayer. And if that's you today, you need to understand this very clearly. It is not, and you're doing something to my sound. It is not, it is not that we earn favor with God. It is not that we do something that causes God to now uh, owe us something. Any blessings that we have is not based on the goodness of us, but it's based on the goodness of the giver. Amen? You believe that? You, you believe that this morning? Okay, I don't want to preach to self-righteousness, all right? We, we, it is only by His grace. We must always remember that. Matthew 5, 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. The repentant publican was forgiven, not the proud Pharisee. So those with great faith, they believe the word of God. They also believe the word of God. Look at verse number eight. He says, he says I am not worthy that thou should come under my roof, but speak the word only. That's so incredible. Did you notice that this man doesn't say, Jesus, can you pray for me? Jesus, can you, can you go to the Father and ask if he could heal me? Rather, he just says, just say it. Jesus, you don't need to pray to the Father. You are Lord. You can say it. You have the authority. This man understood the power of the word of Christ because he understood the power of the Christ of the words. In verse 9, the centurion gives his rationale. I love this in verse 9. 
He said, for I'm a man under authority. Having soldiers under me, I say to this man, go, and he goeth. Another come, and he cometh to my servant, do this and do it. And he doeth it. If you've served in the military, you understand when the sergeant says, hey, I want you to get over here and clean up your area. You don't say, I'll get to that. Give me a few minutes. Not quite yet. You, you know why you're laughing? Because you had eight weeks that beat that kind of nonsense out of you, right? Uh, you cleaned your life up a little bit and you said, yeah, we don't do that. There's a whole lot of pain that comes in those kind of responses. This man said, I, listen, I understand authority. I have a lot of men underneath me. And when I tell them to go do something, they don't backtalk. They don't sass. They go and do it. Roman soldiers were tough people. They weren't allowed to get married for like many times 20 years of their times of service. They didn't have families like we have. These men fought, they bled, they were cruel, they crucified people, and they could do it with pleasure. These, these were toughened, hardened men. And, and, and this man understood authority. He, he knew that insubordinates, people underneath you, when you told them to do something, that they would follow that, subordinates to you. And so he saw Jesus as being so superior that his word was enough to make the disease, illness, paralysis, pain, agony to flee away just by his words. He saw the authority of Christ's words as being that supreme. It's just an incredible thing. This is, this is unprecedented in the Bible. He doesn't say, Jesus, can you please come and heal this guy? He says, Jesus, please don't weary yourself and trouble yourself to come here. Just say it. When you read the scriptures, you often find people saying, Jesus, I need you to be here for this. Do you remember in John 11? John 11, verse 21 and 32, Mary and Martha, they, what did they say to Jesus? Because their brother died. They said, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother had not died. This man says, Jesus, you don't even have to come here and you'll heal my servant. That's it's unprecedented. This is unbelievable faith. And what causes Jesus to marvel is this man's humility. He saw nothing in himself as being worthy, and he totally believed in the Word of God. This, this so reminds me of Isaiah 66. I, I love this passage. It says, Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Isn't that great? I sit in heaven in the cosmos, and I put my feet on your earth. And then he says this, Where is the house that ye build unto me? Where is the place of my rest? For all those things hath my hand made. You can't give something to God. He owns it all. And all these things have been, saith the Lord. And notice, but to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit. That, that speaks of humility, both in a poor and contrite spirit, a humble spirit, and trembleth at my word. You want to cause God who sets his feet upon the earth as his footstool to stand and say, wow. It's the person who is humble and contrite and who tremble underneath the greatness of God's word. Let me ask you, what value do you place on this book? How weighty is it in your life? If you were to look at the last week of your life, how great of a priority and how important has the word of God been to you? Psalm 119, 161 says, Princes have persecuted me without a cause, but my heart standeth in awe of thy word. God's word should make us just 
tremble with joy and longing for obedience. Romans 10, 17 says, faith is what comes from the hearing of God's word. And, and, and so we see a marvelous faith at Capernaum. Let's look at a marvelous response from the Lord in verse 10 through 13. How does the Lord respond? Several ways. Verse 10 says, when Jesus heard it, he tomazo, he marveled. He was struck with astonishment. This word is used 33 times in the Gospels. It's most often used of people being struck with all amazing being dazzled, being astonished by the things that Jesus did. But here it's used of Jesus marveling at this guy. <laughs> Can you imagine like what that scene looked like? Jesus preaches a sermon. He had been healing, doing miracles back in Matthew 4. People were astonished, couldn't believe this was going on. Preaches a sermon. Everybody's like, whoa, just astonished. Everybody's astonished. Comes down. Touches a leper, heals a leper on the spot. Everybody's like, whoa. I mean, everybody was used to being dazzled, amazed by Christ. <laughs> then this centurion comes and says, there's some elders sent from the centurion and said, hey, can you come and heal this guy's servant? He's, he's at the, this is code blue. This is this guy's life is on the line. Can you come? And Jesus said, I'll come and heal him. He gets close to the guy's house. Some guys come out and say, hey, uh, he said, please don't come to his house because they must have seen, hey, Jesus is coming, centurion, Roman centurion, Jesus is coming. He says, hey, go tell him. He doesn't have to come here. Tell, tell him, just, just speak the word. I, I know what authority is. He has more authority than anyone could have. If he says it, it'll happen. These guys come out and say, Jesus, I just want you to know the Roman centurion, he said, you don't have to come. He's not worthy for you to even enter his house. If you just say the word, his servant will be healed. And Jesus goes, Wow. Really? That's, I mean, can you imagine the face of Jesus shocked? I think everybody's like, we've never seen him look like that before. <laughs> we've seen a lot of people amazed around Jesus. We've just never seen him get amazed. Jesus is mesmerized and shocked by what this guy said just wow did you hear that so Jesus uses this man's faith as now a platform to preach a mini sermon and a couple things stand out here <laughs> verse number 10 he says uh, verily I say unto you I have not found so great faith what kind of faith did he call it yeah he called it great faith no not where uh, you think that's a little bit of a slight to the Jews? Are you kidding me? This was so offensive to the Jews. This was so aggravating to him. You know, in the New Testament, the book of Acts, Paul would write about like all the Gentiles would be like, yeah, you know, they, they would listen to Paul. They'd be like, yeah, we agree with you until he said, and to the Gentiles, the gospel has come. And then all the Jews rose up and said, stone him. This man is not worthy to live. They would listen to Paul up to the point when, but when he brought the word Gentile and non-Jew up, because the Jews thought the gospel was just for the Gentiles, they had missed the truth. And Jesus says, I haven't even found this kind of faith among you Jewish people. This Gentile has surpassed all of you. You think that's offensive? Let me ask you a question. Do you think Jesus was worried about offending people? 
And, and he refers to this as great faith. Let me ask you a question, Bible scholars. You ready? How many times did Jesus refer to the disciples' faith or the apostles' faith or even the apostles' Paul faith as having great faith? In the Bible, how many times did he refer to them as having great faith? You want to know how many? The answer is zero. Nada. Ninka. Could go on. There's none. He would often say, where is your faith? Oh, you of little faith. Oh, you of weak faith. Why did you doubt? You know what? When we read about the disciples' faith, you know what it reminds us of? Reminds us of us. We're like, wow, they're just like we are. What's incredible is there was two times Jesus refers to people having great faith. One of them is in Matthew chapter number 15 of a Syrophoenician woman, who, by the way, was a Gentile woman. And the other is a Gentile man here in Matthew chapter number 8. Absolutely incredible. Anybody thankful that the gospel is open to the Jew and the Gentile? And look what else he says in verse 11 and 12. I mean, it gets more heated here. No pun intended. Verse 11. And he says, I say unto you that many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Where would they come from the east and the west? Is that Israel? No, that's not Israel. That's around the world. Other nations. Gentiles. They'll come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Notice what he says in verse 12. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, yeah, if, if he offended them by saying, this Gentile's faith has passed all of you Jews, and, um, and unless, you, unless you come to me in faith, you're going to be cast out because there's going to be a lot of Gentiles entering the kingdom, and you're going to find yourself cast out into hell. I mean, this is just offensive. No wonder when he preached his first sermon in his hometown of Nazareth that they took him and tried to throw him off of a cliff. I think most churches today couldn't handle one sermon of Jesus. I think if he preached in some churches, they would think he was the devil. <laughs> Genesis chapter 12, verse 3 lets us know, as well as several Old Testament passages, the gospel was never just for the Jews. It was for the Jew and the Gentile. The Jews thought only the Jews would be saved, but the Gentiles were to also enter the kingdom. And this is in the Old Testament. And the promise was given to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3. It says, I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Abraham, your faith would be with all people. Psalms 22, 27, all the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. Isaiah 49, 6 goes on to say, I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. This goes on in Jeremiah, Zechariah, on and on in the Old Testament. The Jews were to be set aside to, be, to come out from the world to be a light to the Gentiles, but they came out and said, we're the only ones that are going to go to heaven. And they, they pushed away the Gentiles and, and Jesus Jesus came on board and said, let me, uh, let me let you know that you're not the only ones entering the kingdom. Now, I want to highlight a rabbit trail in verse 11, if I could. So thank you for saying I can. I want to ask this question. In heaven, are we going to know each other? 
Will we recognize each other? Will you be who you are here, there, but except without sin and in a perfect, perfected condition? Or will we be just some generic identity? You'll be somebody different. You won't remember anything, and you'll be just a whole new entity. I've had people say that before to me. Well, you know, you'll just be a generic soul, and you'll have a different name. You won't be who you were here, and da-da-da-da. Well, the problem with that is that's not what the Bible teaches. I don't have time. I could take you to about a dozen places in the Bible to show you in the New Testament why that's not true. But let me just highlight a couple. Here in Matthew 8, verse 11, according to this verse, does Jesus teach that people will be known in heaven as they were known on earth? How were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob known on earth as? Okay, this is class participation. You ready? That's how this works, folks. I, hey, lunch is waiting on me, too. My wife has a roast. I, I'm hungry. I'm Right now, I'm seriously, I'm hungry. And if you work with me, we'll get there, all right? So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I'm, I'm kind of being selfish right now. I need you to help me. So on earth, how were they known? They were known as? Yeah, you're hungry, too. Good. So I would also ask the question, what were they known as in heaven, according to Jesus? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the Bible tells us their identity on earth is the same identity that they'll have in heaven. Who you are here is who you'll be there. Um, is there anybody that you would like to sit down with in the kingdom of heaven one day? Wouldn't it be great to sit down with Enoch? Hey, Enoch, what was it like when you were translated into heaven, raptured up? Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Esther, Elijah, Elisha, David, Daniel, Paul. I mean, this, this would be a tremendous thing, won't it? You know, even in Matthew 7, we had gone through that a couple weeks ago. And in Matthew 7, 22, the people who stand before God will talk to God about the things they did on earth. Didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name do many wonderful works and cast out devils? They remembered all of that. The Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, Elijah and Moses were there. The rich man and Lazarus, they knew their identity. The man in hell knew he had five brothers on earth. These people were known as they were known here on earth, and they remember all of that stuff. Hebrews 13, verse 17 also talks about how pastors will give an account of those that are under their care, the people of their church. And the only way I can give an account of the people in the church is I would have to remember. And so Christ's warning in verse number 12 is, is very severe here. So he goes and talks about a warning that there's going to be many Gentiles entering Jews. You need to make sure you're entering because many of you will be cast out. And notice the great warning in verse 12. He says, but the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Wow. He's not talking about losing some spiritual reward here. He's talking about losing your soul in hell where you will be in such agony you would gnash your teeth. You would grind them in pain and agony. Just as the eternal bliss of heaven is real, so the horrors of hell are real. And what's so shocking to me is when I read this, the man did not come to Jesus asking about heaven and hell. He didn't come to Jesus asking like, well, you know, what's going to happen to us Jews and Gentiles? He didn't ask any of that stuff. He said, hey, I have a, I have a servant that needs healed. And, and if you, I need you to heal this guy or he's going to die and and Jesus uses the man's faith as a platform to preach on hell. What does that tell us? It let's us know Jesus made a big deal about eternity, didn't it? You all with me? 
I mean, Jesus just got done preaching on hell. One of the most severe passages in all the Bible, Matthew chapter 5. He said, if your right hand keeps you basically from being saved, if it offends you, he said, it's better to have your hand cut off and enter into life with one hand than having two hands and go to hell where the fire is not quenched and the worm dieth not. I mean, he just lights it up. And in the first major sermon, he gets off the mountain, he does a miracle, and right away he preaches on hell again. Did he have anything else to preach on? Let me tell you, there's some people say, I'd never want to, never, I don't want those hellfire brimstone preachers. I can tell you, you probably wouldn't have survived one sermon from Jesus. He preached on hell. This is factual. He preached on hell more than everyone in the Bible combined. Take John the Baptist, all the fiery Old Testament prophets. Take all that they ever said about hell and eternal punishment. He's, Jesus, the loving Lord Jesus, preached on hell more than all of them combined. That's, that's incredible. Why did he do it, friends? Why do you think he did it? He wants us to know it's serious. He's like, you better wake up. You think COVID's worrisome? You, you think some illness is a trouble? Do you understand you're, you're mortal? You, you understand that one day you're going to not just go through physical, but you will stand before God, and if you are not saved, you will be cast into a place where you will be in agony forever. Do you realize that? Jesus made a real big deal about this. And he, and he, and he concludes in verse 13, it says, And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way. As thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. You know what I love about verse 13? There's nothing in this story that talks about the servant having faith. But only the centurion having faith. Didn't say, you know, my servant said you could do this, so I thought I'd send some guys on his behalf. No, it was the centurion's faith that brought the blessing. You need to understand this, friends. When you have strong faith in God, when you're humble, you believe His Word and you trust in Him, your faith will bring great blessing to the people around you. You will shower blessings upon them because of your walk with Christ. Some of you have received those blessings, haven't you? You know, the Bible talks about that. Paul, Paul writes about that. He says it's the faith and, uh, of, of, a, of a believing spouse can, can be poured onto the unbelieving spouse. And God could bring salvation through that by His grace. Let me bring you to one, a third and final point. Turn with me to Mark chapter number 6, and we'll conclude here. Look at Mark chapter number 6. Just a brief point I want to highlight here. Mark chapter number 6. Here Jesus comes to his hometown of Nazareth. And we find here another faith that Jesus marvels at. But he doesn't marvel at their faith. He marvels at their faithlessness. In Mark 6, verse 1, it says, And he went out from thence and came into his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when, it was, when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And listen, many hearing him were astonished. They were struck with amazement, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, and even such mighty works are wrought by his hands. They had heard about many miracles. He would do many miracles, and, and they were just amazed by that. Through verse 2, everything's great. You're like, this is, this is really awesome to see. But then something tragic happens in verse 3. There is a change. Verse 3, look, look what they say. They say, is not this the carpenter? I mean, what, didn't Jesus have his carpenter shop over on 3rd Street? Isn't, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this brother James and the son of, he's the son of Mary? I mean, his brothers are James and Joseph and Judah and Simon. 
I mean, his sisters are here with us. And it says, and they were offended at him. You know what Jesus says to that? Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor. You know, the only place you're not honored as a prophet is in your own country, among his own kin, and in his own house. You know how it concludes, verse 5, and he could there do no mighty work save that he laid his hands on a few sick folk and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. He went around about the villages teaching. You know what? That day, Nazareth missed it. They had the glory of Christ in their presence, and they missed it. You know what the problem was at Nazareth? I mean, did Jesus do something wrong? Was his teaching off that day? Were his methods off? No. The problem was not with Christ. The problem was in Nazareth. And, and the problem was, was this. Instead of elevating Christ as Lord, they de-elevated him. They saw him as, as the all-too-common Jesus. And the great sin of unbelief is produced by this. Listen closely. The, the marvelous unbelief is created when you take the things of God and treat them as common. Uh, we've, yeah, we've been challenged to read the Bible before. I've read it before, but you know what? I read it last week. I read it a couple weeks ago. I, you know, I don't spend much time in the Bible. We treat it as common. Oh, did the pastor say we got to stand to read the Bible? Oh, we just sat down. We'll stand to cheer our team, but we want to sit for the word. I don't think you do. I think there's people that could have a terrible mindset like that. People say, oh, it's just church. Let's get early to work. Let's get early to the kids' ball game, but, you know, showing up 10, 20, 30 minutes late for church, it's just church. I mean, I don't really want to, I'm not a fan of the music, so, I, you know, let's just get there when maybe the preaching starts. It's long, long anyway. We'll watch a two and a half hour movie and get exhausted in a sermon. It's just the Bible. There's a man in Kansas City who was so severely burned from an explosion. Robert Sumner shares this story in a book he wrote called Wonders of the Word of God. And the, and the victim's face was so badly disfigured, he lost his eyesight as well as both hands. He, he lost both of his hands in this fire. He was just a new Christian, and one of the great disappointments was he could no longer read the Bible. Then he heard about a lady in England who read the Bible with her lips. Hoping to do the same, he sent for some books of the Bible in Braille. Much to his dismay, however, he discovered that the nerve-ending of his lips had been destroyed by the explosion. One day, as he brought one of the Braille pages to his lips, his tongue happened to touch a few of the raised characters, and he could feel them. Like a flash, he thought, I could, I could read the Bible with my tongue. At the time that Robert Sumner finished his book, he said the man had read the entire Bible four times through with his tongue. And we have two good eyes and probably three, four copies of this at home. Let me ask you, has this become common to you? Is it just the Bible? Is it just His Word? Well, I'll, I'll hear about it Sunday. Really? What about prayer? We treat prayer 
Well, it's just prayer. You know, Christ died on the cross, rose again, tore the veil open. But you know what? I don't know if I have time to pray this morning. People treat the salvation of people as common. You know, people get saved around here somewhat. I mean, weekly, we pray to the grace of God. We see people make spiritual decisions and we trust that those folks are truly faith in Christ is real. When, when you hear of somebody getting saved, can you even muster up an amen or a praise the Lord? Or is it just like, oh, you know, I've heard that before. I wonder what heaven thinks when like the Bible says in Luke 15, 7 and verse 10 as well, it says that heaven rejoices over one sinner that repents. And, and we're like, hey, we had three saved at JDC last week or we had two saved Sunday. We had three saved Wednesday night and we had a couple people saved out on the street and people like, I wonder if heaven's like, wow. You see those Christians down there? They can't even muster up a praise the Lord. Wow. How can the Lord be on the throne of our heart who explodes in joy in heaven and we can't even get excited when somebody gets saved? You know, there's, there's three, four people. We had 14 people saved the last three Sundays. Is that good? Is that exciting? Guess who didn't save them? Right, And it's only the Lord's mercy that they're saved. And when these people come down here, you know, hey, why don't you get by and say, hey, praise the Lord. I'm so glad that you're in the family of God now. But you know, we think my wife has a roast at home. (laughs) I am hungry. The line's long. It's hard to get out of the parking lot. Presbyterians always beat us to Bob Evans. If not them, the Methodist, you know. But maybe that's why the early services had so many people. We had like 300 people in the early service. But when we treat the things of God as common, I, I fear, I fear that we could become like the, the church at Nazareth. Friends, let's never take it common. Let's stand in awe of His Word. Let's get on our face tomorrow morning and say, God, you are so holy. How could I even begin the day without getting before you and worshiping you? I'm a child of God. I can never get over my salvation. You are so gracious. I have your word. I have had missionaries who've shown me entire Bibles that were handwritten in Chinese because they said when in China that uh, we have the underground church and they would show us. I, I've seen them. I've been in churches in college where they said, see, the whole thing's written by hand. And we, we would come together. We would pass pages of the Bible out. And people would take them home and memorize the entire pages. They treated it like it was the most precious thing in their life. More than food, more than water, they long for it. And we have three or four of them on our shelves collecting dust. Let that never be said of any of us. I believe that you are people who love the word. I believe you're here because you love Christ. I believe you're sincere. I believe that. But I know for myself and you as well that sometimes Jesus can become too commonplace. And we can treat the glory of Christ as something that's just not that special. Let us elevate his glory this morning. Amen. Let us honor the king of glory. He's worthy. Let us learn from a fellow Gentile. Let's have faith in him. We are not worthy. He is. His word can do anything. And let us exalt the name of Christ. Let's all stand this morning.
Maybe today you just want to come and take a moment in prayer. Maybe God spoke to your heart. Whatever your need is, maybe you just want to come and worship the Lord. Maybe you have a burden on your heart. You say, you know, I just need to cast my care upon him because he cares for me. Whether at your seat or at an altar, I, I, I encourage you to do business with God today. Don't, don't take lightly an opportunity to spend time with him. Say, why do you do altar calls? Why do you have this time? Because you just heard a 50-minute sermon. And now's a chance, whether at your seat, whether watching online or at this place, in this building, that you have a chance to say, God, help me now to follow in obedience to you. We don't want any emotional decisions. We don't want people to be manipulated by emotions. We want people to be moved by the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. And if you're here today and you say, Pastor, if I stood before God, I don't know if heaven's my home. I'm not sure that if I stood before God that I would be in heaven. I'm going to be down front. We have men and women in the front that can talk with you at prayer rooms off of our sanctuary. They'll just pull you aside and show you from the Bible how you can know when your life's over, you'll be in heaven. Today you can come. Many have already come to spend some time in prayer, whether at your seat or at an altar. Why don't you just take that time seek the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word today. We just want to honor you with our lives. Thank you for these precious people. Be glorified in how we view you, how we read, how we pray, how we attend church, how we get here, how we go home, how we live out what we've heard. Be glorified through your servants. We ask it in Jesus' name.